Welcome to podcasts recorded live at the Center for Spiritual Living in Portland, Oregon. Listen past the end of the podcast to find out more about our spiritual center and ways that you may collaborate with us. So happy Sunday, everyone. We're working our way through Brene Brown's book, Daring Greatly. And you'll remember from last week, our our subject matter is maybe a little bit on the prickly side in that we're talking about the idea of vulnerability. And in particular, you'll remember last week, we defined vulnerability as the ability to be forthright and upfront with our emotions our ability to take emotional risks and risks in general, and our ability to be upfront and okay with making changes in our lives. And I got to tell you, if you're like me, it kind of is like, (sighs) (sighs) (laughs) and we talked a little bit about that. Why is it that so often we're afraid to be vulnerable? Why is it that that idea of intimacy itself is a little off-putting? And I want to continue that theme a little bit today. Brene Brown says that one of the key reasons, and it isn't probably what you expect, is our idea of scarcity thinking. Now you might say to yourself, how does a feeling of lack or a feeling of scarcity, how does that influence or how does that tend to keep us from being vulnerable and and that's where I want to go today but first um, I think I'm going to start maybe in a weird place and talk about advertising so for those of you who are on the planet in say the 50s and 60s this will ring true for the many of you who weren't on the planet in the 50s and 60s you may have to imagine with me um, it actually came about uh, 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 my partner and I enjoy going to antique stores now and then and so we were down in uh, Dundee Oregon and you know they have a series of antique stores there and we were in there and we got it into our heads we would find magazines from the weeks that we were born and it was so funny and what struck me right away was the advertising more than the articles if you look at magazines whether it's you know the saturday evening post or life magazine or look magazine and you go back into the the 50s and the 60s and even to the beginning of the 70s you'll notice that the ads were primarily about the products and that the product would be useful, that the product would be, you know, uh, help you, I don't know, clean the house or whatever it is. And you'll notice that today, the products are not so much featured. You might even see an ad for something that doesn't have the thing even in it. (laughs) What does it feature today? Today it features the glamorous lifestyle that you will have if you buy that thing, right? So it's the the glamorous looking couple getting into the car that are more featured in some ways than the car. It's the, the effortlessness with which you're poised to do the vacuum cleaning now than, than it is the actual vacuum cleaner. We're really focusing in on how you will be different, how you will be smarter, how you will be more beautiful, how you will be seen as having more prestige or more power when you 
have that experience or when you buy that thing. Well, I got to tell you, this has really shifted America. For one thing, have you noticed that you can't see regular people anymore in advertising or on TV at all? Uh, so, so Daniel likes um, kind of spooky movies, and uh, uh, so so he talked me into watching this uh, uh, this thing on Netflix called Vampire Diaries, and uh, and I just had to, so we watched a couple episodes, but I couldn't watch it anymore because supposedly this is teenagers involved in you know romance with vampires, which which you know it could be fun and escapist, but. But the reason I can't watch it anymore is these aren't real teenagers. They all look like they're 35 and, and they're all wearing designer clothes, right? They all look, you know, they've all been made up within, even the men are wearing eyeliner, I tell you. And, you know, the, the men's bodies are chiseled and the women's are voluptuous. And it's like, I don't know what, high school these teens go to but it's not a high school that I'm aware of but do you see that is how we're getting our cues of how we should be in the world and so first of all when Brene Brown says one of the ills facing us right now is that we don't think we're enough it makes sense because this is portrayed how we're supposed to be. I'm supposed to be a teenager that has unlimited use of a car and, and, and can skip school whenever I want. And, and I'm supposed to look glamorous and have all the latest beauty products and, right? And this is, I'm 16 and this is how I'm supposed to be. Oh my gosh, how things have changed. The other thing I think that is persistent is it that we don't quite feel like we've done a good enough job or that our life is good enough unless we have those things. We're kind of striving for those things. And here's where we get into this idea of vulnerability, I think, because when we don't quite measure up, when we see ourselves as less than those idealized pictures in the movies and in the advertisements and the, the way of life that's presented. I mean, where do you think reality TV came from? The idea of reality TV is here's an ordinary person made glamorous, right? We should all strive to be a Kardashian. <laughs> I just don't think it's going to happen. Even with my waist trainer, I just don't think it's going to happen. But, but you see, I mean, we're laughing. We're laughing because it is funny. But in the, on the other hand, a little bit of it is funny because it's too close to the truth. Because we see ourselves making decisions to gain status and to have more and to be more in ways that make us feel uncomfortable with who we are right now. Well, first of all, I want to talk about the reality of not having enough. Because we seems like we're on this quest of achieving more and being more with the idea this will bring us a certain measure of happiness and completeness. And, and I just want to check in with this. Because the other thing that I noticed that was different when I was looking at those magazines from the 50s and 60s and even the 70s is 
it appeared the idea of sufficiency was very different back then. I remember the first house that I was born into and felt luxurious to me, and it was a brand new house. It was only 1,200 square feet, and it had three bedrooms in it. Now that is smaller than most people's two-bedroom apartments right now, right? And yet we thought it was luxurious. We were super happy with it. And I remember uh, on alternate years, we had our great-grandmother that would come and live with us. And I got to share my bedroom with her, and that seemed like a nice thing. I mean, now, granted, I wasn't quite a teenager yet, so when I became that luxurious teenager we were talking about, probably grandma sleeping in my room wouldn't have been okay. But that was seen as like an okay thing. This wasn't a hardship or something weird. It was like, yeah, grandmother lives, great-grandma lives with us every other year, and this will be kind of a fun thing. All right, so what are some of the differences between then and now? Because we do tend to think as the old days as somehow we were happier and so things must have been better. I want to suggest things were just different. And so uh, this is from the uh, organization, uh, the Gallup Poll, as well as presented by USA Today. Here are some of the differences between now and then. Interestingly enough, one thing that isn't different is that uh, 31% of Americans back, let's see, this study was done in 1987, 30% of Americans thought they could live comfortably for about 50000 a year, and a quarter of them thought that it might take $100,000 or more to make them comfortable. This was back uh, in 1987. Guess what we think would make us comfortable today? You know what? What's interestingly is when it's adjusted for inflation, it's the same amount. That hasn't changed. We have an idea of what it would take to make us comfortable, and we probably measure ourselves up against that a little bit. But guess what has changed? What has changed dramatically is what you can buy with that amount of money. Are you aware that things have never been cheaper than they are now? Now, I know some of you are going to push back. Some of you are going to come up to me after this service and say, I'll have you know, when I was a kid, gasoline only cost... (laughs) See, you're starting already. (laughs) But you know what? When you adjust it for inflation and when you adjust it for earnings, things have never been cheaper than what they are right now. So you might say, well, if I'm earning more, well, no, you wouldn't say that. Because most of you would say also, adjusted for inflation, we're probably earning less now than we were then, right? Not true at all. Adjusted for inflation, the now I know this doesn't apply to everybody. I know that some of you might be without work, I promise you, I'm not trying to trivialize uh, living in what appears to be tough economic times. I know that some of us are wanting some of the basics, so please forgive me for generalizing. But the average American makes almost twice as much money today as in 1987. Adjusted for inflation and what you can buy with what you 
have, the average American is making twice as much money. Adjusted for inflation, the average in 1987 was $24,000. And today, it's over $40,000. So almost double. Where's the money going? I know where it's going. We're not buying 1,200 square foot houses anymore. We're not buying apples only when they're in season anymore. We're not buying the cheaper brands of toilet paper anymore. We are a society almost entirely living on luxury goods. Do you feel luxurious? Did you know, compared to the 50s, the 60s, even the 70s, the kind of items that we buy and we think we need and, and we deserve them, right? Why, why wouldn't we have nice things? But what has really inflated is our sense of what's necessary and useful to us. We're making more than ever before but we're using it to buy things that in, you know, 1978, we would have gone, oh my gosh, what a luxurious car. You, you, the doors will unlock when you press a button. <laughs> right? Think about what was good enough even 20 years ago. What was good enough 20 years ago was the free flip phone that came with your first cell phone plan, right? Now a good iPhone is, what are they? $600, $800 for a phone? And many children, to, well, I say children, because my, I still think of my nephews and nieces. Children, and of course, they're, they're not. They're young adults now. But they should have that, right? Why shouldn't they? So that's where the money has gone. Uh, the other thing that I, I noticed in the, uh, so we were shopping for those magazines uh, when we were born. And I remember the, in the Life magazine, the week that I was born, there was an article that said, by 1965, based on earnings and manufactured goods, Americans would only need to work three or four days a week <laughs> and meet all of their needs. And do you know what? their projected earnings that that was based on have come true. So why aren't we only working three or four? And I don't mean four tens, by the way. Let, let me be clear about that. I don't mean three twelves or four tens. Why are we still working four or five days a week instead of three it's because we're choosing a higher lifestyle than we were in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Now, some of you I know just aren't believing me. I have the article. You can do some research. I swear to gosh, I'm not disseminating, what do we call it today, fake news. <laughs> Please look it up. Verify it. It is because of our choice and our belief that we're never quite enough unless we're stretching for that. You know, the article also had a couple statistics in it that just floored me. So guess how many cars are now registered in America? 
There are more cars registered in America than there are people of legal age to drive them. There is more, and this is registered cars, not ones on blocks. We have a few of those uh, outside of our house. Not, not ones that aren't street drivable anymore. Actual registered vehicles, there are now more of them than there are people who could legally drive them in America. What the heck? No wonder we have that feeling that it's not enough. Can I ever hope to sustain the lifestyle of the Cardassians? Can I ever hope to have a waist that small? Can I ever help to eat like the gourmet magazines that I see at the checkout stands at Safeway? Not without buying ingredients flown in from all over the world, not without buying that next largest, most expensive house. Okay, now back to the idea of vulnerability. Her thesis is the reason we're not willing to be more vulnerable is that because if people knew the truth about us, they wouldn't really be interested in us. If they knew the truth about my education, if they knew the truth that I bought my new car actually used, if my house wasn't a certain size, if I didn't keep it clean enough, if people knew what I was really like, human, faulty, large-waisted. <laughs> Do you see? Now, we're not used to thinking of this. I doubt anyone here consciously lives on that level of superficiality, right? But it is there. We're shy about inviting our boss at home because of the way things look. We're hesitant to be a connection circle host because maybe our house isn't of the standard of some of the members that will come to it. We're shy about doing the divine dining program in the summer because maybe my culinary skills aren't quite up to bon appetit. It's real. It's real. And we don't like to be seen as less than perfect. We don't like to be seen as less than powerful. It's difficult for us to be seen in our vulnerability because not having enough translates into not being enough. Can I ever hope to struggle enough to get the money I would need to truly be powerful? So how can we combat this? Well, I think one place to combat it is with a joke. So... The joke goes that a man is convinced that he's a seed. Now, I know what you're thinking. A seed? Really? But it is a trouble because he stands motionless most of the time thinking about the grand plant he's one day going to become. And at the same time, he's a trifle fearful of being small and vulnerable and seed-like. Well, because his life has become unmanageable, he goes to the hospital, and after consulting with psychiatrists, counselors, group therapy, and a good 12-step program, he's finally convinced that he is, in fact, a man and not a seed. 
So the man leaves the hospital contented at his new perception of himself. And as he crosses the parking lot, he notices a flock of birds flying overhead. Immediately, he rushes back in as quick as he can. And one of the therapists tries to reason with him, reminding him that he's a man and not a seed. And the man says, I know, I know, I know that I'm a man. You don't have to convince me, but do the birds know? Do the birds know? And I think that's where we are. That's where we have to start. We have to stop worrying about the birds. It doesn't matter what Madison Avenue thinks we should look like or be. It doesn't matter what the next door neighbors look like or the kind of cars they drive. It doesn't matter how we compare at the 20-something year anniversary with our classmates from high school and whether they're doctors and lawyers and I work at Burger King, none of that stuff matters because what matters is how you perceive yourself. And no matter how much money you make, no matter how you look, no matter how you dress, no matter where your clothes come from or your car comes from, you are made in God's image. You are intrinsically enough. The fact that you have shown up on the planet is enough. You're wonderfully and marvelously you. You you have all the things that you need to, to bring to the world because what do people really need and want from the world? It's not that idealized waste. It's not the extra car. It's love. It's connection. It's that sense of friends and and family and making a difference in the world. It's, It's who you are, not what you have. It's who you are, too, on the inside and not not on the outside, not in that picture frame, but in that frame of mind in your heart itself. And you are marvelously sufficient. All right, I want you to think back uh, to the last time you overate at Thanksgiving. You know, one of those times where, and am I the only one that has a special pair of pants that I wear on Thanksgiving? Hmm? You know? If truth be known, they're kind of like sweatpants, but they look dressier. Yeah, yeah. I think you know what I'm talking about. And you have a little too much, and then you have a little bit more, and then you discover there's nine different flavors of pie. And, and whoever the host is, which sadly often is me, uh, well, you gotta try a piece of each, right? And oh my gosh, by the time that either the parade or the football game finally comes on, all you can do is just kind of waddle into a recliner and spend the afternoon. Now that is abundance. That is abundance, and that is what people falsely think is the opposite of scarcity. They equate scarcity with, how do I overcome that? I get more, I eat more, I buy more, I become more. But the opposite of scarcity isn't abundance. The opposite of scarcity is simply just right. It's sufficiency. It's having enough food, not too much of it. 
It's living comfortably and beautifully and easily within our means and enjoying life. It isn't the eternal quest for the next largest thing. You know, last time we went into Costco, my partner Daniel was just mesmerized by the television sets. Have you ever been there, right? I mean, they have like 90-inch ones now. They have TVs that are bigger than the wall that our current TV would fit on. And Daniel's there going, oh my God, look, the price is down to only $1,200. And I'm thinking to myself, but where would we put it? Why do we? Our TV is only like eight years old. It's already a flat screen one and it's beautiful and it's bright and it's like 46 inches. And he said, yeah, 46 inches. (laughs) Do you see? Do you see what I mean? Do you see? All right, now I'm not going to suggest that my partner is so shallow that he worries about the size of his TV when company comes over, but I would like to suggest that we have a tie in between what we have and what we believe about ourselves. That is my simple suggestion, that we perhaps spend more of our resources acquiring the outside of things to be and look a certain way than we do to figure out the insides that would really make us feel sufficient and loved and good enough. And here's the source of our homework for this week. And this might be a little bit of a soul-searching exercise. So all of us spend time, we spend talent, and we spend money. I would like you to assess whether that is going towards the things that really matter to you. Now, that's going to make you think about what really matters to you, doesn't it? And most of us, I would guess, uh, maybe not all of us, but most of us would say, well, what matters to me most is my family or my friends, the people that are close to me, my, my sense of belonging in my community, my sense of belonging in my, um, I don't know, a family or extended group of, uh, of friends and connections. Most people would say, well, it's my also, it's my sense of self. It's my sense of being enough, of feeling good in my own shoes. It's the peace of mind that I want and knowing that my life is going well and that I'm in it. Third might be that sense of participation, too. Knowing that I'm giving my gift in a unique way that the universe uh, finds pleasant to it, whether it's in my job or in a hobby or, or I'm useful with my friends. So there's that sense of utility and, and, uh, and giving back to the world. And have you noticed I haven't mentioned at all particularly things? So back to homework. Your homework this week is to evaluate how you spend your time, your money, your attention, your resources compared to what's important to you. Okay? And I think we will have a sober awakening. (laughs) I did this myself this last week, and it was a sober awakening because I am not spending nearly enough quality time with family members. 
I'm not spending enough time with the people that I hold dear. I'm not spending the time to feel that more personal connection. You know, in every, in every poll since they've been doing it around Christmas time when they interview uh, uh, young people about, about what they really want in the coming year, now they do it right before Christmas time. So you would think a lot of kids would say, well, I want, you know, an Xbox or, you know, whatever the latest technology thing is. And, and a certain number of kids do. But do you know what always makes the top five list? It's quality time with my parents. They want our time. Our loved ones want us, not what we provide for them, not ultimately. An Xbox will keep us busy for a little bit of time. But Quality time allows us to be vulnerable. It allows us to be authentic. It allows us to really be heard, not just use up our time, but making it as an investment to and for the people we love. Well, I'm going to close today with a quote from uh, Brene Brown and, and this idea of really sufficiency is what allows us to be authentic with people because then we're not worried about uh, how we're dressed or how we show up or what's in our bank account because we know we have that inner feeling that my gift is me. It's the quality time. It's the love. It's the sense of participation. That's what I bring to the table. And each one of us can do that so very richly, regardless of how many cars are in the driveway or what our house looks like. Here's what she says in concluding this chapter. The greatest casualties of a scarcity culture are our willingness to be vulnerable and our ability to engage with the world from a place of worthiness. The counter approach to living in scarcity isn't about abundance at all. In fact, I think that abundance and scarcity are simply two sides of the same coin. The opposite of never enough is simply just enough. The opposite of scarcity is enough. And more importantly, knowing that I am enough. Let us pray. There is one power and one presence, one life and one goodness. There is this infinity of all things, but it's contained within God itself. There is only God. God is every person, every place, everything, every situation. All of it is God. And so there is that sense of abundance, that sense of unlimited everything, unlimited love, unlimited joy, unlimited peace. But, but notice here, and I claim for myself, that the important things are not things. And so of this unlimited universe for myself, I claim the love of friends and family. I claim the abundance of new friends to come and new ways of being in connection with others. I, I claim for myself that open-heartedness that can get people through difficult times. And I claim that surfeit of, uh, of just willingness to be with people, even prickly people, even on our worst days, to simply be there open-hearted, and to be willing to work through the issues as they come. Because it is ultimately all about love. And so, as it is true for me, I claim perhaps a willingness on the part of the people in this room and beyond to really understand what's important. 
And for each of us to pledge our time, our money, our, our resources, our, our efforts towards that which truly makes our hearts sing. The connections, the people, the vulnerability, the intimacy that we so crave, there is where I suggest we put our efforts. And so for this, I'm grateful for this, uh, truly this idea of newness bringing about authenticity and vulnerability. I give great thanks. And in gratitude, I release this prayer into the activity and action of the law, that law that says yes, that, that God that always wishes us love. I let it be, and together we say, and so it is. Thank you so much for being here today. So glad you were here. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you happen to be in the Portland, Oregon area, we'd love to have you visit in person. The Portland Center for Spiritual Living is located at 6211 Northeast Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. We have inspirational services at 9 and 11 a.m. every Sunday. Our mission is to open hearts, ignite minds, and to make a difference. If you'd like to support our center and its podcasts, you can donate online at www.pcsl.us slash donate. Our website is also the place to learn more about what's going on at the center or to contact us. Allow us to become part of your extended community. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are most welcome at the Center for Spiritual Living.